Well, we can pack up shop right now with a song like that. We'll praise your name forever. This is a strange and unusual passage. It is a weird and tricky little question the Sadducees ask. And my argument for you guys today is that we're going to see in this passage that God created marriage so we could see his love in the power of our resurrection. I'll say again. God made marriage so we could see his love in the power of our resurrection. Now, if you're single here or you're not married, you might be like, oh, sweet, I can tune out for the next 45 minutes or an hour. How long will I go? But uh, actually, I think there's really good stuff for, here, uh, for us to see here, regardless of our status. And that's because everything we do in life is shaped by two realities. This is the only time you're going to probably hear this from the pulpit. But Freud, Sigmund Freud said that everything we do in life happens under the power of love with the awareness of death. I don't trust Freud farther than I can throw the guy. But on that, he's right. Look at our culture. We're always telling stories about love. Love lost, love won. We tell stories about passion, don't we? So our culture and every human culture has talked about love. And every human culture is aware of the reality of our impending death. That's what it means to be a person is to come into the world and be full of relationships and beauty and wonder and feel love and passion and zeal, and all of us go to the earth in the same way. So our experience is what this passage is about. Is there a resurrection? What does it mean that we live and love and die? Like, can you get more central of a question than that? What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of why we're here? My argument again for you is God made marriage not just so we'd see his love, it's easy to say God is love. It is harder to say God's power cannot be known if you don't see resurrection. If there is no resurrection power, we should all just leave. Eat, drink, and be merry. We should get out of here. The passage is going to show us that there is so much hope for us, hope that can drive us to live lives of joy. So let me pray one more time. We'll get into this, okay? Dear Jesus, we are in desperate need of your clarity by the Holy Spirit. If you do not open this passage, it will be Greek to us. God, if you don't make it clear, we won't understand. So I'm asking, God, would you open our eyes to see that everything about us was made for you? There's no part of us that doesn't need who you are, and every part of us reaches its fulfillment, its blossom, when we have you. Would you give us eyes to see it? Would you give us hearts to feel the truth of this? Open our minds so we can be transformed by the power of your resurrection. Amen. So first off, um, I'm a, I was a former professor at a, a Corbin University, and I'm a historian, so my first move is context. What was going on? What date is it? What's the, what's the setting here? So when we look at this passage, the first thing to note is the Sadducees. Now, this is the only story in the New Testament where Jesus gets into it with the Sadducees. He's always arguing with the Pharisees, which might raise a question, why? Why is he arguing with the Pharisees all the time? And 
a large reason is, frankly, the Pharisees share a lot of beliefs with us. I don't know if you guys know that. They believe in angels. They believe in miracles. They believe in resurrection. They believe the Old Testament's inspired. We agree with the Pharisees on a lot. You know, they just don't think Jesus is God, so, you know, that's a problem. But we're kind of on the same page. The Sadducees, by contrast, and we know this here in Luke, also Josephus, a first century historian, he actually tells us the same thing. Sadducees don't buy the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe that miracles happen anymore. They don't believe the Old Testament's inspired. Just the first five books of Moses. Now, this raises an interesting question. Actually, Martin Luther notes, he says, this is a very strange story. How could you as a good Jewish student of the law, read about Moses and be like, yeah, angels, eh, probably not real. How could you, with the temple, be like, sacrifices, eh, I mean, we do them, but it's not like there's miracles or any, like, he, he, Luther's just like, how could you be a Jew and enjoy Jewish tradition and religious faith and not believe in the resurrection? He, he goes this far. He says, if this story were not described in the Bible, I would not believe it. <laughs> Luther's saying, if you look at the scriptures, it's full of the necessity of resurrection. If you read the Bible and you're not crying out, there's got to be more. You haven't been reading it closely enough. And so he's saying, what is with these dunderheads? That old, that's like my dad would say that. That's an old word. <laughs> was with these guys who read the scriptures and don't actually think anything new is going to happen. This is the end. Moses gave us the law, and I guess we'll just, you know, have sacrifices, and that's all we ever do. Doesn't make any sense. How could it be, he says, that the people who knew nothing of the resurrection of the dead, the Sadducees, could be found amongst those whom God had chosen and from which Christ was born, people who had the Holy Spirit, the temple, worship, promise, law, prophets, and patriarchs. They had everything they should have needed to see the necessity of the resurrection. So I'm gonna give you a warning. Sometimes you hear Christians are like, eh, I don't know about that. Have you ever bumped into these people? They're like not sure if there's, is resurrection important? Do we need to talk about spiritual life beyond? Like, hey, be a good person. Enjoy your life, love your family. If that's all there is, we're still just worm food. You're still not reading the scriptures right. We need a resurrection or we gotta stop wasting our time. So let's go back to the passage. Their question is about marriage, okay? They're asking a question about leveret marriage. Leveret marriage in the Bible is to keep family lines going. If a husband dies and there's no, there's no children yet, then his brother will marry this woman and, it'll keep, and they'll, hopefully they'll have a child. And so this is a crazy scenario. Seven husbands for the same woman and they just, she just can't seem to have any children. The idea is to keep the family line going. And so this is a sad story. This is a family line of the people of Israel snuffed out. It's a sad story. What I want you to notice here is that the Sadducees get their idea about what marriage is from their surrounding culture. Now, if you're, if you're paying attention, you'll know where I'm going with this hint, hint. They listen to their culture to know what marriage is for. What's marriage for in the first century? Well, in ideally, it should be loving relationships. The Jews, Jews knew love was good. But mostly, in practice, it's about economic union between two families, right? How can we consolidate land so we've got a good farm going, right? It's about carrying on a family lineage or a name. You need lots of kids because they got to work in the field, right? Like we put our kids in front of Nintendo. They kick them out in the field to get to work so we don't starve, right? So kids have to work. You need them for that. And there's no Social Security. There's no retirement. You need kids so you can be old. 
So kids have real economic utility. I'm using deliberately very economic language. That's what kids are for. That's what marriage is for. If you're wondering how did I get that out of this passage, um, the parallel for this story in Luke is in Matthew 22, and it's actually kind of gross. They don't say, for the seven had her as wife, which is what they, how they phrase it in Luke. Matthew gives us a little more direct of a quote. What they actually say is, for all of the men had her. Does that make your skin crawl a little bit? Don't you love the Bible? The Bible is not sugar-coated. It just tells you the way things are. So they literally ask Jesus, well, they all had her, so what are you going to do about that? And Luther has another, Luther's all full of wisecracks. He says, the Sadducees were okay with, men, with a man having many women, but the idea of a woman with seven men, oh, that made their skin crawl. So they had to find a way to get out of this, this scenario. That's why they asked Jesus this story. The biblical vision of marriage is so different. The Sadducees looked at woman and they said property, right? About children. It's about the things I get for my old age, things I get for my farm, things I get to unite the families. I mean, if, you, if you're noticing, there's a very feminist reading of this here, isn't there? Jesus is like women, they're like, rather the Sadducees, women are like cattle. They're like good property. And that's what matters. And that's why they ask Jesus, who gets her? Who owns her? Whose property is she? You tracking with me? Let's listen, and we read this before, to the vision Paul gives us of biblical marriage in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So there's a word submission, but let's keep going. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, this is the part we often read at weddings, maybe, right? We talk about wives submit to their husbands. And like, as good 21st century people, we're kind of like, I don't, mm -hmm, this is a difficult path. What do we do with this? Like, makes us a little awkward, but keep going. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a glorious church without stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Indeed, no one ever hated his own body, but he nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Almost done. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am speaking about Christ and the church. So Paul pulls this fast one at the end. He's like, whoops, that was Christ and the church. Did you see it? It was really fast. There's this metaphor in marriage. There's this picture in marriage about something deeper. So think about what the, Pharaoh, what the Sadducees are doing. They're inventing a story to find out whose property this woman is, and Jesus' vision of marriage is husbands die, to their, die for their wives the way I do for my church. Property is a gross, carnal way to think about what marriage is. You guys tracking with me? He's, this, this is an, ins, an insulting way to put it. If you believe, by the way, that all people are meant to find their union in Jesus, then this woman, she's proverbial, she's not real, but who's her actual husband? Jesus. Jesus was always her husband because Jesus has always been our spouse if we're the people of God. These men weren't her husband. They were the temporary placeholder to point her to her coming husband, Jesus, who does everything that she needs. So they're asking Jesus, who gets your wife? Whose property is your wife? Do you feel the insult there? 
they have the temerity, they have the gall to ask Jesus, who gets women in the heavenlies? Instead of, well, who do you think women are made for? Who are men who are all made for Jesus? Are you guys following? We gotta get this. We're made for Jesus. Marriage is, in Paul's vision, a sacrificial vision of how God's love transforms the church. God invented marriage way back in Eden to demonstrate how Christ's sacrificial love transforms us and makes us new creations. The Sadducees didn't know that marriage was divine. They didn't get its divine origin, so of course they don't know what marriage is for. If you don't know the origin and the purpose of something, you're not going to know what to do with it. You're not going to know how it works, and they don't. Now, listen to where Jesus goes next with this in his response. So this is verse um, uh, 34. He says, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Okay, let's take on that a bit at a time. So the Sadducees think in terms of property Jesus is thinking in terms of a change in nature. There is something about us that the Holy Spirit does, that the death of Jesus does, that makes us a new thing. And if you look at the, the Matthew passage, Matthew 22, Jesus gets right in their face. He says, you ask this question because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. So he gets right in their face and says, the fact that you ask this question so stupidly shows how much you misunderstand what the Bible's all about, how much you misunderstand what God's power is meant to do. So the first point I wanna make today, it's to repeat a point. Marriage is meant to show us Christ's radical, sacrificial, and transforming love of his church. That's what it's all about. I'm gonna get to marriage a little more in detail a little bit later, but I wanna make that clear. When you look at marriage, you should be saying, this is what Jesus and the church are like. That's the vision. Here's a difficult question. How should the origin and purpose of biblical marriage affect our view of human relationships, marriage, sexuality, and gender? And I didn't... I, I didn't plan to get political here today, but this is in the passage. If you actually believe marriage was designed, as Christians should, to show who Jesus is, what should that do with what we think gender and sex and marriage and love are? How should we think about it? See, the Sadducees had it backwards, right? They looked at marriage around them and said, oh, it's about property, it's about ownership, and so they asked questions framed in ownership terms. If you believe as the Bible tells us, that marriage is, is a showcase. It's a demonstration of Jesus' love for us, the church. You gotta reverse the order and say, okay, what does that mean about who I am as a husband, as a man? What does that mean as a, as a son, as a father? My duties come out of who Christ has made marriage to be or what marriage was made to be, okay? So let me give you a couple ideas. Why is divorce dangerous? Again, like, if you've been divorced, I've got, I've got some encouragement for you in a second. But first, let's talk about what it is. If marriage is meant to show Jesus, divorce raises a deceitful question about God. If we sin too much or, or only love others half-heartedly, is that why marriages break up? You don't give enough? You don't love enough? You don't understand your spouse? 
If you see a divorce, the danger is, this asks the question, is Jesus like that? Can I sin too much? Can I be not wholehearted enough in my love? Is he gonna abandon me? You should ask that question because that's what divorce says. It raises this scary and sad picture. But friends, this is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus is a better husband. He's a better wife, right? Jesus will never leave you. He'll never abandon you. If your marriage blew up in your face, brother or sister, remember that was only your temporary, your lifetime marriage. You're still married to Jesus. Christ pledged himself to you forever, before you were ever born. And when you hated him, he drafted an unbreakable wedding certificate for your union, and he signed it with his own blood. You can't get out of this. So when you look at divorce, and that hurts us, look deeper and see the husband who never leaves, the wife who never gives up on you. That's got to be our vision. If you're still married, have you been unfaithful? An affair? Pornography? An inappropriate emotional relationship? Too much time playing Xbox? I don't know what it is. Is there something broken? Hear the encouragement. In Scripture, Jesus cares for the prostitutes. Jesus doesn't care for the healthy, for the people doing well. It's the people who are broken. Your faithfulness cannot override or undermine God's zealous, faithful love and passion for you. You can't do it. You can't do enough to get away from the power of his love. We have to keep that in mind. And that, again, that's why divorce hurts so much because we're not seeing as clearly the picture of the perfect husband. Are you single? Do you feel lonely? Friendless? Unlovable? Do you feel like your sexual sins disqualify you? In the Garden of Gethsemane in John 17, Jesus prays for us, and he actually prays that we would know the Father like Jesus knows the Father. Do you know what he's saying? Jesus is saying the intimacy inside God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that's a quick, quick course in, in, in Christian theology. It's all one God. Three persons, but one God. The intimacy inside that one being we call God, he says you can have that today in Jesus Christ. You can know God as intimately. Think about this. The way that God knows himself within himself, you can know God like that. That's what he's inviting us into. You may lack a lover, single person, but you are offered the same relationship to God that Jesus enjoys. You are offered it right now. Don't undersell what we're being given. I'm gonna make a little more controversial point. I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna back off from it. I want to make it clear because the passage is about marriage. Don't make the same mistake of the Sadducees. Don't learn what marriage and gender and sex are. <laughs> from our culture. I'm going to list a couple things. I don't know where you're at. Are you attracted to people of the same sex? Have you gotten too physical with your boyfriend or girlfriend? Do you feel you're in the wrong body? Are you just confused? I'm going to say this really gently. God made marriage for humankind to teach us about his faithful and loving character 
So what we call gender, follow me here, what we call gender and sexuality are not fleshy leftovers. They're not contingent, right? You're not like, I was born and I happen to be in this body. I happen to have these members, right? No, no. Because we're designing God's image, everything about us comes from God's creative design. You with me? God's creative image is to make male and female. That's what it says in Genesis 127. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were made this way to reflect God's image more perfectly. Think about this for a second. If we believe what Scripture tells us, I'm prompt here. If we believe what scripture tells us about the nature of God before anything existed, at the beginning of time, trying to stop? <laughs> at the beginning of time, inside the Trinity was relationships and love. Think about this, guys. Have you ever gotten, gotten to a debate with someone that said, oh yeah, well, I believe in God. If you don't believe in the Trinitarian God, you cannot believe in a God of love. Because if there's only a God and he has no persons in him, like the Trinity does, who can he love? If God's just floating out on his own before he makes a world, there's not a thing that he can have affection and passion and zeal for. So, if you, so this is why if you get in a debate, maybe with uh, your Jewish friend or with you know, your, your Muslim neighbor, we say we follow the same God, but that's not true because they think God's one, which means before God created, he had no love. But the Trinitarian, the biblical picture of God is before anything existed, God was full of love at his very core. Which means he makes Adam and Eve because Adam needs a helper. Adam can't demonstrate God's love if he doesn't have someone to love like that. Do you see what marriage is for? If there's no Eve, Adam is like, well, horses are cool. I mean, I like trees. Like, he can't have the pat. Are you with me? The, the Bible doesn't shy away from this. The passionate love for a man and a woman is central to seeing how does God love himself? How is God self-loving as the center of all light and life in the universe? If you don't get that, you don't get marriage. Adam needed his helper. Actually, the word in Hebrew is azer, and it means like the essential part. This is like saying not having a leg. If there's no Eve, Adam can't do his job. Adam needs his helper because without Eve, he would be alone and unable to mirror God. God's a trinity, three persons. God made Adam and Eve male and female because it was the only sufficient way to approximate the essential beauty and love and intimacy at the very heart of God. Do you know what your marriage is? Your marriage is a snapshot into the eternal, blessed glory at the center of God. That is what your marriage is for. Anything else is a substitute and a lie. This is the power of marriage. By the way, as husbands and wives, this should put us on our butts. Is your marriage like this? Does your marriage have that zeal and passion and sacrifice? The Bible says it should and can. Stay with me. So much to go in this passage. There's so much good stuff here. Follow me here. As Am and Eve, their partners, as they cooperate to fill and till the garden, they together reflect our three-person God who says, let us create man in our own image. And as Adam and Eve name the animals and have dominion over them, they're reflecting the power and creative zeal of God who creates by just speaking. So we say names and animals get their names. God says and everything becomes. So we're mirroring, we're, 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 we're making a mimicry of God's image. We're, we're doing a mirror image of what he has done in creation. 
So, come back to my point. Which means your gender and your body and even your sexual desires are not an accident. They are created by God to reflect the inter-Trinitarian love between the persons of the Godhead, to demonstrate his passion, his beauty, his zeal for making things new, his sheer creative brilliance. When the scriptures call us to live with purity, and they do over and over and over again, especially sexual purity and marital faithfulness, this is God's demand we keep the metaphor clear so all the universe can see in God's image, in us, the beauty and love and brilliance and riches at the very heart of God. You are not born in the wrong body. You are not accidentally made. Your desires are not, they may be contorted by sin, like don't kid ourselves, but you were made for God. Your desires were made to show you God. Your needs and your hungers were made you to realize who you hunger for. You follow me? You were made for him. You were made to look like him in his image. You were made to need him. You were made to enjoy him forever. That's what we're here for. That's the purpose of marriage. Go a little bit further. The answer, I think, for this first question of like, what should we think about marriage then? It's this, let me summarize it. The origin of love, marriage, and sexuality in God's own character proves that no other framework for marriage, sex, and gender will work. That's about as conservative as I'm gonna swing here for you guys, but this is what scripture says. Do you wanna follow the instructions or something else? This is the only one that works because this is the only image of the eternal God who is praised forever, amen. Any other method won't work. And our culture is full of messages about other things to try. Discover who you are. Express your sexuality. The Bible says there is an image that we're made to mirror and anything else is a lie. Anything else is a substitute that won't work. The purpose of marriage is a picture of God's love for us. Proves, here's the other part, no person or thing can make you feel happy, secure, and fully satisfied forever. Your needs brought into marriage... Guys, being married, for those of you who aren't married, being married involves sometimes not getting what you want. In fact, a lot of times not getting what you want. And it's designed that way so you say, I need a better husband. Not so you split with yours, but to say, I need someone who's better than this because I'm not enough. When you find with your, your spouse there's something missing, there's something wrong, your, your, your move shouldn't be to say, well, that's because they're not enough for me. They're the wrong person. I didn't find my soulmate. It's to say, the one who my heart longs for. I don't know them enough. I don't have enough Jesus. That's what's wrong with myself and with my relationships. Okay, we talked about love. Let's talk about resurrection. The Sadducees fundamentally misunderstand the nature and origin and purpose of marriage, love, sex, and gender on earth. So how could they possibly understand heaven? Like, this is just kind of logical. Notice how weird this move is. When right after asking this question about marriage, Jesus doesn't really answer it. He says like, well, you don't get marriage. They're the sons of the resurrection, the sons of God. They're like angels. I actually don't even want to dive into that very much. What Jesus is saying is they're categorically different. Are you with me? That like when people are reborn in heaven, they're not doing the same things we do on earth because they're fundamentally transformed. They're sons of God, sons of the resurrection. I was thinking about this today. Um, 
almost all the time when Jesus tells stories, he loves to use agricultural metaphors, right? Planting seeds, sowing seeds, harvesting crops, the field, you, you get what I'm saying. He loves to use images like that. He does not. What's interesting is in Greek, this, this, uh, um, when the Sadducees speak, they first took a wife and died without children. They keep using the Greek word for seed. There was no seed. They don't say he, she didn't have children. They say there was no seed. Then another husband, there was no seed. They keep saying there's no seed. Jesus does not, one of the few passages I've noticed where he deliberately refuses an agricultural metaphor. I was thinking about, why is this? And I think the reason why is because the problem with the seed image is the question they're asking is, what happens when marriage flourishes in the heavenlies? It's like ours, but just a little different, right? And Jesus is like, no! <laughs> Listen to what he says. He says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. If marriage isn't like, oh, it's, oh, it's, oh, it's better now. No, no, it's so fundamentally transformed. Asking this question shows you don't believe in the transformative power of the resurrection. This is why the Sadducees are wrong. Actually, uh, in, in the Matthew passage, Jesus you know, gets more in their face with, you know, in, his, in his response. But the point is that Jesus is saying, you have a category mistake. You have a category error. You're asking, what does marriage do when it gets better? And he's saying, marriage has always been this. Your marriage isn't marriage. Jesus' love of you is marriage, and we get to play act a little version of it. We got it. Are you with me? We got to grasp the right side of the tool, okay? If you're, it's like holding the hammer from the wrong side. You're like, oh, why doesn't this metaphor make sense? Grab the other side. God is what marriage is about. Our relationship with Jesus is what marriage is and always was and always will be. We just get to have an image of it when we're here on earth. Some of us, not even all of us, because it's just an image. Then Jesus changes direction, says, but that the dead are raised. So here's, here's where things get weird. Love and death. He just said, this is what marriage is. This is what love is. And then he says, let me talk to you about dying. Okay, thanks, Jesus. Why, why are we going here? But that, the, the dead, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush. Now, because the Sadducees don't understand the nature of resurrection, they don't understand the nature of marriage, Jesus has to give them a course on this. Now, um, I'll give you one word. This is like your vocab word for the day. It's called mortalism. Mortalism is the belief that when you die, we're just, we're just kaput. We're just dead. So mortalism, then this kind of goes back to the beginning of the, the message. Are we just mortal? Is there anything more? Is there anything after? Jesus tells us clearly, clearly rather, that there is more. There is a resurrection coming, and that if that is not so... God is not God the way he says he is in Scripture, okay? I want you to think about this here for a second. In, in Matthew, it's even a little clearer. Uh, what Jesus says in Matthew uh, 23, 2, he, he quotes, he says, he's quoting uh, uh, Deuteronomy, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. In Greek, it's what's called a continuing present verb. So you could literally read that, I was the God, I am the God, and even I will be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, when he quotes from Deuteronomy, especially in the Matthew passage, is that like God's continuing existence is an existence as the God of the righteous. Now if you're like, what are we talking about existence and time for? This isn't sci-fi, Josh, what are we doing? The question is, does God really love you if you die? 
If God says, I will be your God, you'll be my people, I have a promise for you, and then you just die and rot, did God's promise come to pass? You're still on the ground. We need a resurrection or God's promises all go bankrupt. It has to happen. Mortalism, the idea that we're just gonna die and stay dead, the Bible repudiates it because God's blessing, God's promise of blessing will be untrue. How about saying, I'll be your God and you'll be my people? No, he won't, because once you kick the bucket, you're nothing. You're worm food. So this can't be true either if that's the case. His love, he says, I, I loved you with an everlasting love. That's not true if we stay dead. We have to be resurrected or God's love just it ain't up to the job. It's not good enough, not strong enough. God's love is strong enough, friends. Listen to what Sir Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said. He's talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, how they see and experience God. It's beautiful. Can those eyes cease which have seen the Lord? Can those souls perish which have conversed with the eternal? Would he give his son Jesus to die to seal the everlasting covenant by his heart's blood with mere shadows who are but for a little time and cease to be? To the mortalist, to the person who doesn't know if the afterlife matters, I understand how God can be a helper and a friend to men of brief existence, but I do not see how they can, he can be their God. Must they not partake in his eternity if he says, I will be your God? How can the Lord be an eternal blessing to a being who ends? How could there be an everlasting covenant with a creature who ceases to exist? If there is no resurrection, God lies. When Jesus says, I'll never abandon you, I'll be with you to the end of the age, well, the end of me is the end of your love, if that's true. So I want you to lean into this, guys. Our resurrection is the necessary element to make God really be our God. If there's no resurrection, God was your God for 75 years? Great. I'm, I'm, I'm being sardonic here, right? Like, if all you get is your time on this globe as God is your God, then we just die and rot, and that's all there is to it. If there is no resurrection, God's followers are wasting their time, God's promises are temporary, and God is not up to the task of being our God forever. So are you guys tracking with me? If marriage is about showing who God is, his eternal and divine nature, his love for us, likewise, if there's no resurrection, there is something broken in who God says he is. He's not really what the Bible says. So I want to close by looking at resurrection and giving you hope and faith. The resurrection is true, and it is happening even now. I'm going to phrase it, as, I'm going to phrase it this way. Why should I want a resurrection? <laughs> Maybe it's a dumb way to put it, but like, does it matter? Why do I care? Why? Is this kind of like an ethereal debate about angels dancing on heads of pins and stuff? Like, does this matter to us? Spurgeon, I'm going to draw a little more for him. He's talking, his sermon's from, I think, 1893, and he's actually talking about the, the Earl of Shaftesbury who just died. And he's talking about, like, where is the Earl? <laughs> where is he gone? <laughs> Listen to this. He says, I know your sorrows make an excursion to the grave to look there for your deceased ones. I know why you go to the grave. I know why you want to go see the people you miss. My, my mom died in 2017, just like out of nowhere, got sick and died in like two months. Like, it's hard. I miss her. You want to, Spurgeon says, you want to lift that coffin lid and to unwrap the shroud, but don't do it. He is not here. The real man has gone. This is a Lazarus image. This is a Jesus in the garden image, right? Where's his body? It's not here. His body's gone. 
The resurrection is so necessary because if it's not there, it's a waste of our time. Spurgeon says, I love this, I'm connecting them, connecting death and love now. The passing of believers, Christian funerals should lead us to great joy. It is the better birthday of the saint, yea, his true wedding day. Are you ready to be married to Jesus for good? That is the promise for us when we die in faith, that we get to be with our beloved forever. That's the excitement. This is why Paul says, if I'm here, I got work to do, but as soon as God wants me, bam, I'm home, because that's what we're meant for. That's the wedding we're awaiting. Married people, you should want a resurrection so your marriage is fulfilled. Now, this is kind of something I've kicked around before. Um, a couple years ago, I was uh, in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and uh, I happened to go to an old Presbyterian church, and we are reading from Hebrews 11. If you guys know Hebrews 11, it's uh, sometimes called the Hall of Faith. It lists Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these famous Old Testament greats, and says they all lived by faith, and they all died waiting to see what God was going to do. Because, like, when David died, like, the kingdom kind of sucked. Solomon was not a great king. Israel wasn't free very long. How are the promises of God going to come true? And Hebrews 11 says, by faith, they were all waiting, all waiting to see what God would, would reveal. It specifically says in Hebrews 11 that, let me see if I have it here in my notes here. It says in Hebrews 11, that's fine, um, that they are all seeking a better city. So when Abraham left, for those of you who are new to the church, a guy named Abraham in the Old Testament, he leaves his hometown just because God says, go. Go follow, I'll give you a whole land, you'll live there, you'll be safe, there'll be blessing, all these good things. And Abraham just goes. And the author of Hebrews says, he left by faith hoping for a better city. Abraham didn't know where he was going, but he knew God made a promise, that promise was gonna come true. So he left saying, I mean, Ur's the greatest city in Babylonia, but God's got a better city than Ur. I, I don't know about you guys, but I'm so tired and frustrated of crap here on earth. I want a better city than this one. The city's messed up, man. I want a city that's eternal. And that's why Abraham leaves. Now, when it comes to marriage, if you've got a great marriage, Jesus' statement can be kind of scary, right? There won't be any marriage anymore. If you love your spouse, you're like, but I, I love my husband or wife. I, what will life be like when I'm not my spouse anymore? I think that the image that makes this clear to us is thinking of something like maybe a rain check or a coupon, right? Let's say you get a coupon to buy a new appliance. I'm just making up an example. I don't know. We just bought, a, we just bought the Nintendo for the kids. So, okay, sure, I'll go with the Nintendo Switch, whatever it is. So to get that, if I get a coupon, right, the point of the coupon is to get the item, right? So if I go to the store and I hand the coupon, they give me 50 bucks off and I get my product, my product I don't say, oh, man, I love that coupon. Oh, if only I could keep it. The paper, it's oh, it felt so good. Oh, no, what? The coupon's not the important thing. The coupon tells you the thing you're getting, right? You see the metaphor? Like, this is hard, because I love my wife, but what's gonna happen in heaven is I'm not gonna say, oh, man, those were great times when I was married. I'm gonna say, I thought I was in love with my wife, but I was in love with Jesus the whole time. Everything you love about your boyfriend or girlfriend or your partner or your parents or your kids, everything you love about them is beauty they are reflecting from Jesus, even if they don't know him. Every good thing you've ever had in a relationship is an image of the relationship you're meant to have with God. So when you are in heaven seeing Jesus face to face, 
You're not going to say, oh man, it was pretty great being married. You're going to say, I didn't know, but you're the husband I've always been waiting for. That's the beauty of resurrection is we finally get married. I don't know if you guys have ever seen the, the movie Stranger Than Fiction, but uh, one of the characters says, every story is either a tragedy or a comedy. And a tragedy, the main character dies. And the comedy, the main character gets hitched. There's some truth to this. Either we're all going to die or there's a marriage for us that's going to finally make everything make sense. Jesus is, I'm going to talk about singles here in a second. Jesus is a better husband, a better wife, a better partner, a better friend, a better lover, a better health meet, a better comforter, and a better leader. You're waiting for him. Maybe today you don't know that. If this is your first time in church or it's been a long while, I want to encourage you. You've been looking for Jesus. He's always been there way in the wings. Everything that you love is him behind something else. I'm going to close with a couple thoughts here. I'm running out of time. Paul tells us in Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Because the Holy Spirit is inside the believer, we're being resurrected even right now. Just like the wedding is foreshadowing the wedding to come, my resurrection and my spirit, it's nice, it's great to be born again in God, but how much better will be our resurrection and glory when all the things that hold on to us are gone. The same power that raised Jesus is at work in your bodies. You're going to be more alive in your resurrection body than you are right now, even as a believer. There's more to come. Okay. Let me close. Oftentimes when we talk about God, we talk an analogy. You know, I love my wife. I love God. These are the same. We always are grabbing the wrong side of this analogy, right? It's that God loved us first. I was thinking yesterday or the day before, in Song of Songs, there's a, a young woman, it's, it's, a, it's Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon uh, chapter 3, where she's running around. She has this dream, and in her dream, she's running through the marketplace, looking for her husband, can't find him anywhere, and then finally she sees her fiancé, and she says, I found the one my soul loves. That's us sometimes. We're running and looking for the thing that will fulfill us. There's another woman in a book written by Solomon. It's Proverbs, the woman of wisdom or the wise woman. And most people, when they read scripture, say it's a picture of Jesus. We run and chase looking for the thing we want, but Jesus chases us and finds us. Do you not always find what you're looking for? In marriage, you won't. We're always looking for things, but Jesus came to earth to find us, to live the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserved because he would not let us slip through his grasp. So my encouragement, friends, God created marriage so we could see his love and the power of the resurrection. And let's see that happen. Revelation 21. I want to close with this because the Bible begins with the wedding in the garden. It ends with it too. Revelation 21. Can you put that on the screen if we got it? Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven with God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! 
God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away, has died. So friends, today my call to you is trust in Jesus. His love is so good that if you taste it, you can't stay dead. His promises are so solid, he can't let you stay in the ground. Isn't that what it says in scripture? Christ couldn't be held in the grave. Nobody could keep him down because he's God. In that same way, his love in us makes us alive. So the exciting thing I have for you and your marriage and your singleness is all this time. Every good thing you've seen is Jesus shining through other people. Embrace him today. If you don't know him, come up and talk to me or one of the elders. We'll be meeting in the living room over there if you want to talk about this sermon afterwards. Taste and see the Lord is good. If you taste Jesus, there'll be nothing else that will satisfy because you've always been meant for this wedding. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, you are the actual lover of our souls. You are not symbolically our lover. You are not metaphorically our lover. You are the center of everything in the universe. God, help us get our heads on straight so we see that you're not a reflection. Our marriages, our love, sex is a reflection of your essential beauty. God, would we see that and see that every good thing, it says in James, every good thing is coming from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good thing is from you. Would we see that and be desperately and passionately in love with you? And we would be so needy and hungry that we will not stop reaching out until you give us your Holy Spirit and change us. God, would we, would we, be, would we be so desperate that we like the woman who keeps ringing the, the door, keeps asking for her neighbor to open up. Will we be like that, begging for you to reveal yourself as our husband? Will we stop accepting substitutes that do not satisfy? Would you give us the real marriage, the real wedding we've been waiting for? Would we see the resurrection power we are promised begin in our hearts now? And we know, God, when that happens, we are promised a forever resurrection, the wedding feast that never ends. We ask for that because Scripture commands us to ask boldly in your name. And so, God, I ask in your name that people who are wandering and are lost would hear the message of your love clearly and would say, I have to have that. Everything else I've been looking for was just this, and I didn't know. God, give us the courage to reach. Amen.